Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week I'm traveling. And instead of doing the thing, I'm doing a different thing where I play a rerun. And in this case, I'm playing a rerun that I thought would tie in really well with last week's episode. Last week, we talked about the first paramedics. So this week, we're going to revisit the Young Lords. We're going to talk about the group of radicals who completely changed the way that healthcare works in this country by taking direct action and doing all kinds of cool stuff. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your podcast about Wait a second, Sophie's not here. We can do anything we want. Hello, and welcome to Hollywood. Let's talk about Hollywood. That's a real place, and we care about the people there. Shereen, do you think that's a good podcast? I feel like we'll be the first people to come up with that kind of podcast. Yeah, we're gonna. it's going to be a, a big hit, smash hit. Yeah. yeah. We're going to get some we're looking celebrities. looking at that podcast money. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, or, okay, actually, maybe we should just, we'll do that later. First, we'll do a cool people, do cool stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we have to get that out of the way first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, great. We'll jump in. Um, yeah. Because I'm really excited about today's guest and topic. My guest today is Alinda Sagata, and the principal songwriter, I guess is the maybe way to say it, but I'm not entirely certain, of one of the best bands out there, Hooray for the Riff Raff. Alinda, how are you? I'm good. I'm on a wild journey of life, but I'm really happy to be here, and I've missed you. Yay, yeah. <laughs> I keep finding my guests are like, my old friends from back in the day in a nice way. Um, and Alinda and I know each other from New York many, many years ago. Yeah. That's beautiful. Alinda, I was going to describe your music and then I realized I don't know how to. Is there like a catchy one sentence version that you use? I guess like sometimes I say folk rock. Okay. Because I feel like people nod when I say that. Okay. <laughs> you know? I will go out. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, there's there's rock in it, but it's also folk. Yeah. <laughs> I will say to anyone who I don't usually like folk rock as is described. Yeah. And I really like Hooray for the Riff Raff. So if anyone Good. Yeah. 
Everyone should what would listen. you call it? Also, one time oh, somebody called it folk punk, and I was like, whoa, I felt like younger me was really excited. <laughs> but only I, younger me. I used to distinguish between folk punk and punks playing folk. Because mm. <laughs> folk punk is when you take the punk vocals and put them over folk instrumentation. Exactly. And then punks playing folk is when punks play folk music. Yes. And, and I like that one more. I gotta admit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I once um I once stopped playing shows because I was playing shows with an accordion and I told this other person I played with, I was like, Oh, I don't usually like folk punk, but I really liked your set. And he got really offended. And he was like, which is fair, it was a dumb thing for me to have said. And he was like, Well, what do you call what you do? And then I stopped playing shows. Oh, I oh my god. Didn't want to be folk the punk. power. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> we are not talking about folk punk today. Okay, well, first, as people might have noticed, our, our producer Sophie is not with us. Instead, we have Shireen, at least partly, but otherwise we're flying mm-hmm. solo. I believe in you. Thank you. That's all claim that I do, too, so that <laughs> everyone feels safe. Our audio engineer is Ian. Hi, Ian. And our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. And our topic today... Alinda, people talk a lot about like getting shit done, but usually they don't get shit done. They talk about getting shit done. Mm-hmm. Today we're going to talk about some people who got shit done. This was the thing that I kept running over and over again was just like getting shit done, be out of. They got so much done that this is our second four-parter. Um, there's two weeks that we're going to be talking about a street gang that turned into revolutionary socialists who fought for change, and they only got the tiniest portion of what they wanted, and they still got more than almost anyone I ever read about. In case anyone's wondering, anyone who's listening, if you were wondering, huh, I wonder if the reason that the trash gets picked up is because of people rioting. I wonder if the reason that people don't use lead paint anymore is because of militant demonstrators who were threatening to overthrow capitalism. And was it people committed to the destruction of capitalism who brought us the patient's bill of rights and the fact that some of times were treated okay at hospitals? The answer is yes. Because today we're going to talk about the Young Lords. Alinda, have you heard of the Young Lords? I have learned. I have heard of the Young Lords. I was um, very deeply affected by learning about them um, some years ago. And it like really changed my music and it changed my life. That's cool. The yeah. the reason Alinda is the guest for this is that I started writing a script for someone else, and then um, I was name dropping Alinda and one of uh, one of their songs in the script, and then I was like, Alinda should be the guest for this, and then Alinda <laughs> said yes. I'm so. really excited mm-hmm. to learn to learn about them. You know, yeah. I like. I've had the emotional experience of learning uh, some about the Young Lords, but. I'm ready to deep dive. Fuck yeah. Okay, so today we're going to talk about, uh, this week and next week, we're going to talk about some of the amazing stuff done by the Puerto Rican radicals in the continental United States. And that means we should at least briefly talk about Puerto Rico itself. Puerto Rico is an American colony. The U.S. doesn't like to use that word. They use the word unincorporated territory. Whoa. Yeah, it means I've heard commonwealth my whole life. Oh, okay. I think that... Which which is... Mm-hmm. Well, I just think it's a very silly term when it's like, there is no commonwealth. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> the, 
That's the way people in the United States have the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. It was all extracted. Yeah. 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 So the U.S. got this colony in 1898 um, by the usual means of colony, getting colonies through war. And in this case, they stole it from Spain as the result of the Spanish-American War. Spain, of course, had stolen it in the first place. They stole it from the indigenous people of the island back in 1508. Puerto Rico. So it becomes a colony of the U.S. instead of of Spain. And then in 1917, Puerto Ricans were suddenly granted U.S. citizenship, which was so benevolent. It was just a strange coincidence that this was just in time for all the Puerto Rican men to get drafted. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the U.S. gave Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship because they wanted to throw them into the meat grinder of World War I. And the entire Puerto Rican House of Delegates, like the the local governance in Puerto Rico, voted against mm-hmm. getting U.S. citizenship because they were like, Oh, whoa. Yeah. And that part actually a little bit surprised me because a lot of, you know, U.S. statehood is a big part of a lot of Puerto Rican movement stuff now, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But um, they knew it was a fucking trick, as far as I can tell. They were just like, yeah, no, why would we go off and do this? So ever since... Puerto Rican folks have been fighting for, and this depends on who you ask. Some people are fighting for independence from the U.S. Some people are fighting for statehood. Either way, people are fighting. I'm kind of curious whether, like, uh, in, in your family, whether, like, there was a strong sense of statehood, independence, that kind of thing. Like, It really depends. It's like, I think there's definitely a exhaustion mm-hmm. that my family has, I think is pretty common um, to uh, Puerto Ricans who, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of family in the island anymore. Mm-hmm. And it seems like my family is very much like, well, how would the island survive if we weren't owned by the U.S. at this point? Like an yeah. exhaustion of this idea of independence even being possible. But yeah. then there are certain people, like, you know, there's like some more radically leaning people in my family that are just like, the point is to try the point is to figure it out you know yeah and i think like it's like useful to understand and be sympathetic to both of those positions for me as someone who's not puerto rican is just being like all right like independence the more radical thing sounds always cooler to me but i'm like i could get people just trying for what they can you know yeah and i feel that too even being like a puerto rican person that wasn't brought up on the island i'm like Mm -hmm. what right do i have to tell people how to like to make a decision that really it affects them. It doesn't affect me, you know, yeah. it affects their daily life. So um, I definitely try to be aware of that, especially with like having a band and being sometimes the only Puerto Rican person that someone's ever talked to. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, part four of this episode will be particularly interesting as relates to not the band part, but the mainland U.S. Puerto Ricans, and we'll we'll talk about that later. Everyone's going to have to wait a little bit. So the U.S., they want Puerto Rico still, and it is part of the U.S. exercising power across the globe. It's not like some benevolence thing that we have this fucking colony. Uh, The majority of U.S. interventions in Latin America are staged on the island of Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. And since Puerto Rico is a colony, it means the U.S. is out to extract whatever value it can from the island, which in 1917 met grist for the mill... Post-World War II, it was something different, but something related. It was need workers. We need workers because so many of ours just died because we just fought World War II. So please, everyone, come over. 
And so between 1947 and 1970, a third of the population of Puerto Rico moved to the United States, looking for something like stability and a decent life. Uh, disproportionately, this was youth who came, and 90% of them went, at least to begin with, to New York City. This, this mass immigration started because of a U.S. project called Operation Bootstrap, which was this massive spike in industrialization that displaced people even as it like put in power lines. So it was like kind of like, oh, we're doing all this nice stuff. We're bringing in power lines and industry and, and infrastructure, but it just fucked everything up. It was openly an attempt to stabilize the political situation in the colony and make it more useful for U.S. interests. Uh, the sugar economy, which was also bad, but it was like what Spain was mostly up to, was replaced by industrialization, also bad. And U.S. investment in capitalism just like poured into Puerto Rico. So Puerto, Rico folk, Puerto Rican folks led the fucking up of their country and moved to the U.S. Where... They were welcomed with open arms, economic opportunity, good living conditions, the American dream, and no, no, wait, no, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> Puerto Rican immigrants was well, even immigrants the right word. I mean, you know, people coming from so Puerto Rico. Confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Met with violence, nativism, bigotry, racism, classism instead. Uh, Puerto Ricans in the U.S. were immediately slandered as junkies and thugs and welfare dependents, um, the same as marginalized people always are. They were treated like illegal immigrants, which of course is not true, and obviously undocumented people should also be treated well and fuck borders, but in this case, literally it's U.S. citizens moving to another part of the U.S., and they'd come over basically at the behest of the U.S. government to work, uh, but the piece of shit racists didn't like thinking, period. Yeah, this is actually when um, my family came over is like around 1947. Oh, okay. Oh, damn. So yeah. like kind of like first wave of all this stuff. Yeah, my dad came over when he was a kid and he has mm -hmm. this story about being on a plane that the chairs were actually like lawn chairs and that my Holy grandmother shit. came with like her three kids because my grandfather was already over in New York working mm -hmm. and like... It just being like, okay, every, you know, I'm sure they were like some, some house <laughs> bolted down, but just like this totally crazy yeah. experience of like, let's get as many of these people over as we can, you know? That's fucking, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but I just had never even imagined that kind of like, yeah, like I wonder how I thought, I never really thought about how folks came over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Operation Bootstrap had another impact. It showed the world that the quote-unquote third world was open for business. And I think it was like one of the things that kind of started the industrial economy disappearing from the United States oh. as industrialization has moved out to the colonies and to the sort of, you know, in a neoliberal sense, you can kind of claim that most of the quote-unquote developing world is colonies for the rich nations, you know. So... There's a weird, awful downside to this. Millions of people are showing up for looking for work in the cities because they've been told to come over and get work in the cities just as the U.S. is like starting to eradicate industrialization within in the continental United States. And so there's not a lot of work. In 1966, mm -hmm. a study found that the unemployment or underemployment of Puerto Rican men in East Harlem or what's called Spanish Harlem or El Barrio was 47%. Half the Puerto Rican families in New York lived worse than immigrant families in New York during the fucking Great Depression. 
So by 1966, 20% of the students in New York City were Puerto Rican and 30% were black, which means it's the first time that white people weren't the majority in New York City in the schools. Whoa. And I don't know if you knew this, but white people don't historically like that. They don't. Yeah, it's not a not a cool look. Yeah, yeah. They haven't figured out. They're like, they don't want to get treated like they've been treating people, you know? Yeah. So... 2,000 white parents picketed City Hall over school integration. In 1964, almost half a million white students stayed home in a boycott protest organized by their racist fucking parents in New York City. Wow. Yeah. Like, half a million fucking kids didn't go to school in protest of there being people of color in their schools. And, like, white Northerners have this attitude that, like, White Southerners are the only racist people? Seriously. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> so we'll come back to New York later. Okay. Our story winds up in New York, but it starts in Chicago. Yeah. In Chicago in 1954, some white assholes firebombed a Puerto Rican bar and an apartment, which led to a week of fighting. And it led to non-white gangs forming for self-defense, specifically Puerto Rican, Mexican, and Black gangs started forming in Chicago in the 1950s. And you got a bunch of capitalists exploiting this racist fear. White people started fleeing Chicago in the 50s out to the suburbs, the, the classic white flight. The, the white people who stayed in Chicago were like really paranoid about Black people driving down their property values or whatever. So these real estate assholes who created the racist panic in the first place would get white people to sell at a loss and basically like stoke these fears in order to make money and flip houses. And it was kind of like domino style. And so like the white flight was like both racist cowards and also racist capitalists lo- were looking to exploit the fear of the racist capitalists, racist cowards. And that's the condition into which our very young heroes, or lords, as we might call them, enter our story. <laughs> yeah. But first, we're going to talk about some other heroes. Capitalism and products and services that support our show because we're ad-sponsored. And now you can listen to those ads. And we're back. And we are talking about the beginning of the Young Lords. They formed as a street gang in 1959 in Lincoln Park in Chicago. They were formed by seven kids. Six of them were Puerto Rican. One of them was Mexican. And this part I didn't know. I mean it when I say kids. How old do you think these kids were? I mean, I always imagined like mid-20s, but I know that's wrong. Yeah, like half that. Some Whoa. of them are like 11. What? Yeah. Um, in fact... Well, like actual children. Yeah. The kind of like main founder of the... We'll get to this. Like one of our like heroes that we're going to talk about, Jose Chacha Jimenez. Uh-huh. He was 11 years old in 1959 when he was a founding oh member God. of this gang. Yeah. That actually... Okay, that reminds me though. Have you heard... There is a story about um, kids in Puerto Rico talking about kids not going to school about Mm -hmm. kids in Puerto Rico, like not 
going to school in protest of this time when they were trying to make, um, when the U.S. was trying to force like English to be the official language of the school system. Oh, no, this is cool. No. Yeah. So there is, I don't know a lot about it, but this, there is like a history of Puerto Rican children being yeah. like, yeah, fuck you. Fuck we're yeah. just not going to go. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. Which so is the opposite in, in the of this. Sorry, go ahead. It's in the blood. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's the opposite of those half a million white kids who are like, we don't want to go to school because there might Someone at school speaking Spanish. I can't handle it. <laughs> yeah. Um, God forbid. Wow, 11. Yeah. Jose Chacha Jimenez, he was a founding member. He's 11 years old. By the time he was 14, he was a pretty, petty crook. He got caught a bunch going in and out of facilities all the time. His Catholic parents had come over from Puerto Rico with him when he was two. Um, his mom passed... When they moved to Chicago, his mom packed Christmas cards for a living and his dad worked in a meat packing plant. As the city redeveloped and tore down everything and like fucked over all the poor, poor people, they moved nine times in the first six years they lived in Chicago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Where they wound up in Lincoln Park was like diverse, quote, quote unquote, but it was segregated block by block. Um, his okay. mom pulled a bunch of strings to get him put into a Catholic school because he'd been ra- she'd been raised in a Catholic poorhouse and had connections. But this will be shocking to you. So the priests at this school, not so cool. Um, they were all a bunch of racists. They used the N-word constantly. Uh, Whoa. They just fucking hated these, like, I, I, as best as I can tell, it was like white Catholics, and they were like, fuck, oh, why did, and it's like, honey, that's on you. Your missionaries went and turned all these people of color into, <laughs> you know. My family had so many stories about, like, nuns, mm-hmm. like, hitting them with rulers and shit. Yeah. Like, luckily, I was able to grow up not, like we went to mass like for yeah. Christmas, but I was raised so I was raised by a bunch of like hippies basically that got hit by nuns who were just like, fuck <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. That yeah, my dad went to Catholic school, so I didn't have to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so this is where he's getting raised, how he's getting raised. His dad had actually been in a gang himself, uh La Acha Vieja, the old hatchet. Mm which is the oldest oh. known Puerto Rican street gang in at least Chicago. I'm unsure if there's older older oh. Puerto Rican street gangs in the United States. I tried looking and like it would come back being like 1970 and I'm like no, no. That's not yeah, the oldest yeah. one. Well, cool name though. I know, right? And especially That'd be a like, sick band name. <laughs> okay, but you're breaking my rule. I have like if there's like Margaret's Law, it's that everyone who says that would be a cool band name is wrong. But this actually <laughs> would be a good band name. Like, okay, I won. Yeah, you um, you broke the law. <laughs> Ban jail you have to go to. <laughs> yeah, I know, and especially because the old hatchet was probably a bunch of teenagers, right? Like, yeah. The only uh, like Puerto Rican street gang I know about is the Ghetto Brothers. Okay, I know I don't know about. But them. I think that was I think that was later on. Okay, and they eventually became a band. Oh, word. Yeah. So different than the Ghetto Boys. Yes. Great. I was like, okay. So the history, I feel like it's worth pointing out. If I'm talking about this street gang, right? And people have like various impressions about street gangs, uh, depending on where you live and and all of these things. But it's like really worth understanding why people are forming a street gang. There is a long history of ethnic gangs in Chicago. This is not a nice history. It goes back into the late 19th century when German and Irish youth crewed up not with each other, but with other German and 
the Germans with the Germans, the Irish with the Irish, because everyone's fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. In order to be shitty to more recent immigrants. That's where ethnic mm-hmm. gangs come from in Chicago. And this tied very happily and easily into the city's politics. The city gave the gangs resources, and the kids would grow up and join the more formal political structure. They all became cops and firefighters. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's this this criminal justice professor guy. His name's John M. Haggardorn. And his quote is, the Irish gang, in effect, was reinvented as the Chicago Police Department. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, corruption and Chicago go a long history together. Yeah. So the white ethnic gangs continue to be fucked up, whether before joining the cops or after joining the cops. And they did a bunch of racist shit time and time again as black labor moved into the city. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I feel like this is important to understand when we talk about the development of non-white gangs in the U.S. more broadly, right? Because like a huge part of racism is like being like, but the gangs or whatever, you know? Totally. And it's like, okay, they came from defending themselves against you. Yeah, for real. Which isn't to say, uh, whatever, we'll talk about some of what they got up to and, uh, you know, it's complicated, right? So Chacha starts a gang when he's 11 because white gangs have been fucking with him for a year already. Since he's 10 years old, he's used to white gangs. Like, because um, the white kids in the area outnumbered everyone else 17 to 1 at that point, demographically. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he gets his nickname uh, because racist kids keep saying cha 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 every time they see him. Oh, wow. And he's like, all right, fuck it. That's my name. I'm cha cha. And he just becomes a badass. I know. And it like, be like a scary name to run into someone who's like fucking with you. No? Def- yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like you go and like, someone's like, maybe picking a fight with you. And you're like, what's your name? And they're like, Tiddlywinks. And you're like, I gotta go. Yeah. I hear my mom calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like you've seen some shit. Yeah. They met up at a junior high school, the Young Lords. Their founder was this darker-skinned Puerto Rican kid, Orlando Davila, who was red as black and got even more shit from people um, from which he mm-hmm. le- learned to defend himself. And I'm kind of curious your, your take on this part because like, this is something I can like read about. But there's this, yeah. there's this interesting writing about race relations in the Port- Puerto Rican immigrants at the time. Uh, for most immigrants, the Puerto Rican ethnicity was far more important than their race as viewed by other people in, you know, mm. in the continental U.S., so, like, Chacha had green eyes and light skin. Orlando was red as black. But for the second generation, American views, like, mainland American group views, crept in more. And more younger yeah. Puerto Ricans identified with black struggle. And their parents were largely trying to distinguish themselves from black struggle. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, especially in my family, it's like, I have so much white privilege, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like... Definitely, I witnessed a lot of racism get just, like, crammed into my family's minds. I think, like, what I've experienced is also, like, a lot of pride about, like, not being considered uh, immigrants. Right. Even though they have this immigrant experience, it's like the classic American thing where it's like, well, we are one step closer to this pyramid the top of the pyramid than people who are dealing with immigration status we don't have to deal with that you yeah. know and racism and colorism definitely was something that i saw all the time okay 
And yeah, that, that makes sense. Like one of the things I have a hard, hardest time, because again, I'm mostly just reading about this stuff and everyone who's writing has different, you know, things that they're trying to say or not say. Right. And like, so like sometimes I read about like all of the awful in interfighting, but horizontal conflict between uh, uh -huh. black New Yorkers and Puerto Rican New Yorkers. Right. And then other places I read, I'll read about all of these like moments of solidarity and people will be like, oh, we all got along. And like, yeah, I have a feeling the answer is both maybe, you know? I think so. I mean, also, like I said, there was a generation like who was radicalized and mm -hmm. then after, you know, not to jump ahead, but then they experienced the fucking eighties and it's yeah. like such disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And then my generation comes, and I feel like it's only now that I'm seeing kids like get radicalized in the same way. Yeah. You know, I feel like, so I don't know. I think I, I think there is more like solidarity now, but mm -hmm. I'm also feel like a white kid looking in, right. You know, also an interesting thing in, in New York, at least is the fighting between Dominican and Puerto Rican. Oh, okay. People. That was something I witnessed a lot because of like immigration status yeah. and also racism. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's, I love, love is not the right word, but I'm so interested in all these things that like complicate the mainstream conception of like the racial hierarchy, right? And like, you know, the fact that Puerto Rican immigrants would be coming from different ethnic backgrounds with, or different racial backgrounds, I guess you would say, um, from Puerto Rico, whereas like to like the people who live in the US, maybe it was like, whatever, you're all fucking Puerto Ricans, fuck you, you know, as compared yeah. to like, white Puerto Ricans and black Puerto Ricans. And, and I, I don't know enough about race relations within Puerto Rico. I've only read about them and how they relate to the mainland. Um, yeah, I feel like I've definitely experienced like, you know, I get this like platform and because mm -hmm. I feel like I just make people feel more comfortable. They're like, oh, I understand you more. Or, like, yeah. I don't have to experience that racism. So I think certain Puerto Ricans that are super light skinned, it's how I think, I know, like yeah. we get these you know, platforms and experience, you know, yeah. these opportunities and shit. And J-Lo becomes like the idea of what being Puerto Rican is instead of a super complex identity. Yeah. You know? I had no idea that J-Lo was Puerto Rican, but I also... Really? Okay, this is the like main running in joke is that I don't know anything about pop culture. Um, oh my God. Yeah, Ricky Martin and J-Lo. I knew about Ricky I Martin. Grew up. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up thinking that was what being Puerto Rican was. So yeah. then to find out about the Young Lords is like a mind altering moment where I'm like, wait, what? We're like revolutionary fucking fighters? This is crazy. Yeah. I thought we were just like puppet. You know, like I was just raised with this idea of, yeah. of what it was. Yeah, I mean, the. Well, I guess we'll get to it. Yeah, the death knell of yeah. everything in the 80s and all that. Um, this is the kind of sad thing about like cool people in history. And you're like, well, if you tell the story long enough. It, but there's amazing yeah. stuff along the way, which is all any of us have as our lives anyway, right? Like all of them. So they're a gang now. Let's go back to okay. Chicago, 1950s. And they immediately set out and they're like 11 to 14. And I think maybe some of them are like 16 or whatever. And they immediately set out to wow. do gang shit. They're really into stealing cars. You got to have a nice car. And selling stolen car parts is good money. Cha-Cha had okay. white passing privilege. So he was the kid who would do the initial stealing. Also, probably the fact that he's like a, a white passing 11-year-old is probably part of how he got away with this, you know? <laughs> My God. Yeah. And then the Young Lords immediately got to fighting anyone who fucked with them. 
uh, and they immediately started getting arrested for weapons possession, assault, petty theft, and drugs. Most of the fighting they did, this is like where they, was they would forcefully integrate places that were informally whites only. Oh, wow. Yeah. When older folks would get pushed around, like older, older Puerto Rican folks, and would get pushed around or slapped for being in the wrong place, there's like the Lakeshore Drive beach. The young lords would just yeah. show up and be like, nah, that's cool. We're allowed to be here. <laughs> like, Wow. That beach in particular, they fought with broken bottles and knives for the right to swim there. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, I really They're like little them. badasses. Yeah. I know. I like my friend who turned me on to, I'd, I'd heard some about the Young Lords, but not like a ton, right? And my friend was like, you really need to do an episode on them. And um, it ties into, there's like some stuff that keeps coming up over over and over again. We're going to talk about tuberculosis in this episode. For some reason, tuberculosis is this running theme throughout all these things. Whoa. And it's going to come up, but not yet. Okay. But yeah, so, and the white gangs would fight back, right? You know, the, I presume German, German and Irish gangs would fight back and try and fight the young lords and be like, no, we want our whites only beach or whatever. But eventually the white gangs relented. And it, I'm under the impression this isn't less because the young lords always won and more because they always fought. And I think that this is how oppressive power works. You don't even need to always win. You just need to keep fighting and they'll back off first because they have more to lose, right? They're more privileged. Wow, what an, a great lesson to like keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. When Cha Cha was 15, he found himself increasingly in charge of the gang because he was willing to um, <laughs> do the paperwork for the gang. <laughs> what, did, what did like paperwork entail? So he was the business manager. And he would raise money to get everyone in the gang black and purple sweaters. And, yeah. And they would throw soul dance parties, and that's how they would raise the money. And so he was this fundraiser. I want to go to one of those parties. Yeah. Um, And he was like, he wasn't afraid to throw down, but he was always also trying to figure out nonviolent solutions to most problems. Um, He still fought a lot. He got arrested 20 times over the course of his young life. Like only a couple Holy of years. Shit. So I really like this. Like, this is my favorite version of nonviolence. Is the like, our preference is nonviolence. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, but, we're, <laughs> but if I must, yeah, we're gonna swim at this beach, nonviolently, ideally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ideally. <laughs> All right. So then he's sixteen, and uh, he might be fifteen or something. I, I get the year something happened, and not the age of the person. So I do rough math. And he gets sentenced to, okay. I don't remember what I caught for this time. Um, he gets sentenced to go live in Puerto Rico for a year. The judge is like, whoa. Yeah, I didn't know this was a thing. It was an assault that would have had him in prison for years. And I think that the judge was just actually like, you dumb fucking kid. Go get out of here. You know, like. Wow, yeah. So he goes to Puerto Rico. And while he's there, he tries to get up to all his usual shit. At one point, he steals a horse to ride off to go hotwire a priest's car in order to go see a girl he likes. <laughs> wow. True uh, romance. Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> but they catch him and they don't throw okay. him in jail when he's in Puerto Rico. Instead, they chew him out in public. Like I think in like the town square, basically. A priest and then an older woman just like yell at him for being a fuck up in front of everyone. 
Oh my god. And this works. I mean, wow. he doesn't he doesn't like 180, but it's way more effective than getting sent to jail. Totally. And going to Puerto Rico is like a, a sea change. His two main sea change moments about how he becomes who he becomes. And going to Puerto Rico is one of them. He did come back and a week later go to jail for stealing a toaster. Okay. So he's not 180. New habits, they take a little while to catch on. Uh, much like what also takes a while to catch on are products and services. And that's why you have to hear about them over and over again before they stick in your mind. And you know that we've had really bad sponsors lately. Um, the main bad one is Reagan Gold. So <laughs> go buy gold. That'll teach them. And we're back. Oh, we should have thought of, now that we're back from a break, I want to go back to being sponsored by really nice stuff. Uh, historically, some of the things that we got sponsored by, for a long time, we were sponsored by the concept of potatoes. Um, we've also been sponsored. No. Well, not a, officially, but our unofficial sponsor is the concept of potatoes. Okay. And we've also been sponsored by like a nice comb, the um, <laughs> s- happy sleeping dogs is a good sponsor for the show. So I'm wondering if you have any sponsors you'd like us, um, when Sophie is back, Sophie will get us sponsored by by whatever you want. Um, you know, lately I've been really into baby elephants in general, especially Ooh. baby elephants bathing. Okay, okay. So if that's, po- if that's a possibility. We can do it. Sophie is really good at shit. And this show is brought to you by baby elephants bathing. Um, go wash... <laughs> videos of baby elephants and see them be cute and that is substantially better than buying fucking gold in 1966 in chicago you have the division street riots chicago declared puerto rican week which included the city's first puerto rican parade cops were there oh cool yeah and the cops were super respect no the cops were being cops so they shot someone They shot someone in the leg during the celebrations. And so a crowd showed up and then cops sicked a dog on someone and the crowd went wild and the rioting went on for three days, uh, destroying 50 white-owned businesses that ran through a Puerto Rican neighborhood. Holy shit. And Chacha was sitting in jail during this and he was just like, for something else, maybe the toaster, I'm not sure. And so he's just cheering Uh it on, right? He's like, go kids, go, this rules, you know? Yeah. Other young lords are involved in the organizing in the wake of it for structural change. And a bunch of new groups pop up in the wake of this. And the, the most influential one, or the one that I keep reading about in the books that I was reading about this, is the Latin American Defense Organization, or LADO, LADO. Oh, wow. Um, and they rule. Um, they spread across the country. They bring together working class Latin Americans. And, but the young lords, they're not ready to be a socialist organization quite yet. In fact, they're starting to drift apart. Uh, members grew up, they get married, they join the military, they go to prison for a long time because mm-hmm. they keep doing crime. In 1968, Cha-Cha is in prison again. I think he's doing a 60-day stint for heroin possession. This is a, another thing no one likes talking about in all the history. You've, everyone who's listening has heard me go on about this before, but like, they always cut so much shit out of history books. They never talk about how a bunch of our heroes were drug users, how a bunch of our heroes were sex workers, a bunch of our heroes were like had specific political ideologies. Like, like there's all this stuff that gets cut out. And so, I don't know much about Cha-Cha's drug use. I do know a lot about how the Young Lords dealt 
with heroin use um, in New York, and we'll talk about that later. Oh, I'm really interested um, in that. Cool. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, like I'm. I kept the, whatever. I'm really excited about this. Everyone knows this. So he's doing a 60 day stint for heroin possession. And in prison, this is his second sea change moment. A bunch of shit that happens that solidifies his future politics. First, he's in prison when MLK is assassinated. Second, a bunch of Spanish-speaking prisoners, including him, get thrown into solitary for basically no reason. And a guard tries to call him white in order to get black prisoners to beat him up, to like race bait people against each other. But a black prisoner Uh stood up for him. And that black prisoner said a few simple words that everyone needs to shout from time to time. Shut the fuck up, you pig. Um, wow. And so Chacha's like, <laughs> oh, cross-racial solidarity is real, right? And while he's in solitary, he likes to read. And the Nation okay. of Islam has pri- is in prisons because they're, they get arrested a lot. And they would get themselves jobs in prison libraries in order to provide radical books to people, which is fucking rad. And so he starts reading Martin Luther King. He starts reading Malcolm X. He also started reading a book oh, called wow. The Seven-Story Mountain, written by a radical Catholic monk named Thomas Merton. Oh, gonna look that up immediately. Yeah, he was um he was super social justice in his faith. He was really into interfaith understandings. Like all of his like theological books are about like why Catholicism isn't the only way, even though it's his way or whatever. Um, how different uh-huh. people from different religions can get along and understand each other, and like including not just like the monotheistic religions, but like he writes a lot about. I didn't write this in my script, but I think it was Buddhism, but I don't remember. And he's really into writing, fighting racism and war. And he has this quote I really like: "The world is full of great criminals with enormous power, and they are in a death struggle with each other. It is a huge gang battle using well-meaning lawyers and policemen and clergymen as their front." controlling papers, means of communication, and enrolling everybody in their armies. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. What is his name again? His name is Thomas Merton. I haven't read his books okay. yet, I, um, but I, I, I really like this weird, like, yeah, he reads MLK, he reads Malcolm X, he reads Thomas Merton. And then he gets out of prison. And he's like, you know, we need something like the Black Panthers. Good thing I'm the leader of a gang. Nice. What will he do? Who's to say? You certainly can't go read a book or some article on some website. You have to wait until Wednesday for part two of this epic four-part series on the Young Lords. But first, before people wait until Wednesday, they should hear more about you and what you've been working on and how people can find you. Well, I actually am working on a new album, so that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, I just put out an album last year mm-hmm. called Life on Earth. My band's called Hooray for the Riff Raff. And you can find me on all the social medias, even though Twitter scares the fuck out of me. So I don't really <laughs> hang out there. <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out how to exist on the internet without it severely damaging me. I think we all are. Yeah. Um, but Instagram, you know, all those places. You could probably see me on tour. You should do that, definitely. Ooh, when are you going on tour? Um, I'll be on tour in May on the West Coast. I don't know when this will come out. This will come and out. And then in July. Before then. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I'll be on tour in May on the mm-hmm. West Coast. And in July, I'll be like through the Midwest. Cool. And some other places. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And you 
seriously owe it to yourself to go check out Hooray for the Riff Raff if you haven't heard it before. Or if you came here yeah. to listen to this because you like Alinda, thanks for listening. And I hope you stick around for Wednesday. And you can follow me on the internet at Magpie Killjoy on Twitter, which I also hate, but I'm there. You're so good at it, though. Thank you. I, all I do is get really sad about it at least once a week. Um, oh. And Instagram at Margaret Killjoy, where I mostly post pictures of my dog as I go hiking. Really cute dog. Thanks. I like him. And I will see everyone on Wednesday. Farewell. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six x visit tomboyx.com hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher i'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends in season one we told you about the murder of gail katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend bob at one point a woman's torso washed up on staten island and was misidentified as gail She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hello and welcome to well actually sophie's not here so we can name it whatever we want welcome to sophie town the only podcast where all of us are named sophie and pretend like we live in a town called sophie town where only good things happen. 
No. no I love Living Here. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, you've done a really good... I, I like what you've done with the place. And our audio editor is Sophie. <laughs> or this is Cool People Did Cool Stuff, which you probably knew because this is part two of a series for which I'll be your host, Margaret Sophie Kiljoy. And with me today is my guest, Alinda Sophie Sagata. The that's one and me. only. Yeah. How are you doing, Alinda? On this day, that's totally a different day than last day. Oh, I'm doing good. I had a snack, a Hell fake yeah. bar, so I'm Ooh. feeling great. I'm here in New Orleans. Uh, you know, New Orleans, also known as Sophie Town. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. doing good. Yeah. Uh, Excited to talk about one of my favorite topics. Hell yeah. Sophie. I mean, um, the young lord. <laughs> yeah. Our producer is Ian Sophie. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman, and I'm going to drop that bit now. This is part two of our extra cool four-parter on the Young Lords, only the second topic to end up four-parter. Um, and where we last left our heroes, you've got this guy named Cha-Cha, who's just been politicized in jail. And then he gets out, and he's the leader of a gang called the Young Lords. So he puts two to two together and decides to get some shit done. First, he tries to get shit done the normal way. He doesn't, he doesn't immediately be like, hey, the young lords, now we're radical socialists. He forms an activist group. He forms an activist group called the Puerto Rican Progressive Movement. Oh, wow. It doesn't get off the ground. No one, <laughs> um, he's like, this doesn't really work. No one's like really excited to go join. I think this is an important lesson. No one's really go excited to go join the like blah, 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 blah thing. That, uh, and then he's like, do you want to be a, become a young lord? And people are like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> our background is crime and our future is the overthrow of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You were like, sign me up. Yeah. So yeah, he's like, all right, well, I'm a gang leader and uh, I need a bunch of people to try and get some stuff done and we exist to defend ourselves from white racists, so fuck it. And I will say, best as I can tell, most of the histories center on him a little bit too much. He is really great. He's cool. Um, but in all of this, he's not alone. A few of the other long, young lords are with him from the start of all this change and like are part of all the radicalization and are largely left out of the histories because people kind of... They pick a guy, right? Totally. And he seems like a great guy to have picked. I got no, you know, it's always worth pointing out. The first thing that they did as the new, well, they didn't change their name yet. Eventually, they're the Young Lords organization. But um, 20 of them show up to a meeting. There's a neighborhood meeting where a bunch of people are talking about gentrifying the neighborhood and like literally bulldozing huge chunks of it. So the Young Lords are very polite and calm. They sit politely through the whole thing, and then they point out the lack of Puerto Rican representation in the group making these decisions. And then they trash the place after sitting Whoa. very politely. Surprise yeah. ending. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, like, threw chairs like around and shit. Work. Yeah. I feel like it just, like, emphasizes the sort of intimidation factor if they're like, oh, hmm, mm, interesting. Mm, yes. And then smash it up. Then yeah. they went home and they studied. Uh, they just like sat down and fucking read and they talked to people and they studied leftist movements and they like did their homework. And in the end, they were like, all right, Black Panther Party, that's our model. And I think that the Black Panther Party, who again, I haven't even done an episode on yet, but they're like in the center of almost everything we're talking about. So many groups exist because of them, right? 
And so the young lords, they put together a 10-point program. And if Cha-Cha had been a target for harassment from cops before when he was, a, you know, a gang leader with a long record, he has twice as much of one now. He gets stopped and arrested like twice a week. Oh, Jesus. Everywhere the young lords go, the cops are there, usually like already, I think. And this is really telling. Anti-gang enforcement in the city of Chicago, including a new intelligence unit, started because gangs went political. Mm. It was fine when you had racist gangs of Irish and German youth. And then it was like, they, they actually literally all just get city jobs. And then it was like fine-ish when you have the newer non-white gangs who just do crime. But once they go political... Like, the, then we can arrest you and like you can all fight each other. And yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like you're staying busy fighting each other. Yeah. Now when they're politicized, they're fucking scared. Yeah. And the repression doesn't stop them. They went, some of the things that they did in, in their early days, they defended welfare activist mothers who did a sit-in dem- to demand their back payments like because the, they weren't getting oh, paid. Wow. And so they went into security for them. Uh, they formally integrated, there was always apparently a, not, I don't know if always, but there was a women's auxiliary to the young lords called the Lordettes. And the women's role in this movement is going to increase over time. And we'll talk about that. Um, totally. And when they I'm go, pol- about that. yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and going political is a huge part of it. Right. So they formally integrate the women's auxiliary into the main group. And then everyone, I believe, including the men start, starts working on offering childcare to their community. They also get together with a black gang to fundraise, throw community picnics, teach people about drug safety. They get toys for Christmas for kids and like food for people's tables. And they're doing mutual aid and they're doing community defense. And they're just like doing the shit that makes 60s groups so fucking cool. And meanwhile, the city's like, we have to destroy this violent gang. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Who are giving Christmas presents to children. Yeah. When they were stabbing people in the beach, the cops were like, oh, you know, boys will be totally boys. True. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a po- there was a community council meeting at a police station about what to do with the young lords or whatever. And so three to five hundred people, main, many in purple berets, uh, showed up to this community council meeting. Um, and then they disrupted it. They they hung up signs on the walls with slogans like city law does not allow pigs on the street. And pigs need support centers to keep them off the street. They started pushing for what gets called, or what they called, third world unity. Welcoming in black Mm -hmm. and white members as well, um, if they were working class. So working class people of all races were allowed to join the young lords. Um, Oh, wow. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it's interesting. And when we talk, the New York one will have even more information, or I have even more information about... uh, the multiracial makeup of the Young Lords. They threw a conference on the matter with Chicago Blank Black Panther chairman Fred Hampton as the keynote speaker for this third world Damn. unity concept and trying to get everyone together. And then they joined up with this group. Have you ever? I hadn't. Have you ever heard of a group called the Young Patriots? No. All right. Imagine. Okay, well, first I'm going to say, okay, so they, they form the Rainbow Coalition. That's what they, because there's all the different you know, colors of people or whatever. And, and one of the groups is the Young Patriots who are a leftist socialist street gang in Chicago who are white Appalachians who use the Confederate battle flag 
as the flag of their socialist movement. <laughs> Anyone can wow. see Alinda's eyes are like staring. <laughs> I'm just like, wait, my brain is bending. <laughs> I know. Um, and I'm not like laughing at them. I'm laughing at how incredibly this doesn't translate to modern politics. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. Also, I'm just like, I was first even like, whoa, Appalachian folks in Chicago. Like, that was interesting to me. Also. Yeah. Well, and that's actually the thing is that they were facing. It's not ethnic oppression, right? But they're facing mm-hmm. a specific class oppression that is based on where they're from, right? Because they're not yeah. just poor white people, but they're poor white Appalachians. And it's a different type of classism um, that still exists to this day, right? Like, um, and Of course. So they get called hillbillies. They're poor as fuck. Um, they're iced out of proper white society. And so they're like, all right, fuck you, Yankee piece of shit wasps we're doing our own thing or whatever and they work to start interracial working class organizations to get medical care to children and to end the draft they tied in their struggle with poor oppressed people everywhere as part of the uprisings around the world their party platform specifically spoke out against cultural nationalism which makes sense right because they're white people right so yeah you kind of just like can't do a nationalism if you're white right and any given context. Um, I mean, if you're Ireland trying to decolonize, it's complicated, but that's like literally in Ireland, not some fucking Irish racist gang in Chicago. And like, yeah, they're just like doing all of the right stuff. Um, they, they first met the Panthers when they and the Panthers accidentally double booked a church in Lincoln Park to do a talk. That's really, that's like a cute meeting I know. of the minds. I know. <laughs> and so then they just talked about their mutual class interests um, and anti-war interests, right? Because this is another thing that's like part of all of this too. You have the Vietnam War going on during all of this. I was just thinking that, like we have the draft going on. My father yeah. actually went to Vietnam. So that was like a oh, okay. huge part of my growing up was learning, was just learning through his eyes and like his experience yeah. As a Marine, a yeah. Puerto Rican Marine in Vietnam wow. when he was super young. And it just like radicalized him yeah. so much when he was able to make it home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, when I was young, like my father was very clear with me, you know, elementary school age, just like they put people of color, they put black people and Puerto Ricans on the front lines yeah. because they expected us to die and we were totally disposable just yeah. like that's what i was raised with you know was f- yeah. from that perspective when i say that rules i mean that rules that your dad knew that and passed that along not that it rules oh, that they did course. that <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> yeah he, he was a total badass but that is like such a big part of like the background of this story that is hard for me to remember i like forget yeah. like oh yeah at the same time you guys were being fucking drafted yeah yeah, it doesn't. There's so many different things that are happening in the late '60s, yeah, that it's hard to keep them all in your head at once, and hard to realize that they're all absolutely part of each other, right? And like, you have the young patriots with their Confederate battle flag, which it only makes sense as a like "fuck you" to Northerners, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it does not. I am not advocating that anyone call themselves patriots or fly. <laughs> yeah. The American, the, the either the North or the South flag, not a good idea, but like, yeah, 
Yeah, and and so they 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 meet up, right? And they're talking about anti-war shit with the Panthers. Um, and from then on, while they continue to fight for white working class, the white working class, they almost never appear in public to speak without Panthers or young lords around to support them and to show interracial solidarity. And I suspect oh, wow. this was like specifically a move if you're a white organizer to be like, it's a little bit weird because it's a little bit tokenizing, but it's also a way of being like, you need to know we are not organizing white people in contrast and against people of color, you know? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, let's see some of the shit they did. By 1969, 1970, I'm going to skip ahead for them just because I'm doing a little aside on the Young Patriots. Uh, okay. They're taking pages out of the Panther playbook. They organized free breakfast programs. They ran medical clinics. They organized clothing drives. They cop watched. And one of the main things that they did that they got remembered for is they took patient advocacy. And this is going to tie into Young Lords later too. They took patient advocacy seriously. People who had to go to the doctor in the communities that this like street gang of socialists like were taking care of, they would get a patriot at their door to advocate for them um, and to come with them to their appointments and shit. Whoa. Yeah, man. Incredible. Yeah. You're like trying to be a shitty classist doctor and there's this like angry hillbilly who's just like, <laughs> yeah, in a beret. Yeah, his socialist is <laughs> so just like you're gonna you're gonna treat him right. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. Especially for like older folks or just like yeah. I mean that's something I always I always knew about like the young lords at least was this like yeah per, like very much connection with like older generation you know totally and and. And a lot of medical work. That is like a huge thing yeah. that the young lords, particularly in New York, are going to do. That we're going to be talking about mostly next week. Yeah. They ran a medical clinic, the Young Patriots. They ran a medical clinic. Um, this ends up the most famous of all their activities. It started off serving 150 people with dental and medical care. Uh, cops fucked with it oh. constantly. They arrested patriots for trespassing on their own property. Like, they fought it all in court. It took forever. Eventually, they won, and their clinic was back open, and it served 2,000 people for years. Damn. Four, four years. It, it kept it up until 1973. Mm -hmm. The feds fucked with them, basically. Um, and it also fucked with all of the churches that supported both them and the Young Lords. Um, and the whole thing fell apart oh, wow. because of federal repression. And anyone who's curious can listen to, probably last week by the time you all are listening to this, episode about the religious radicals and the movement of pacifists that brought down COINTELPRO or at least revealed it. Yeah, they're cool. There, there was a, um, I went to the Bronx museum mm -hmm. um, years ago when I was first learning about the young Lords, because there was a big um, exhibit about them. Mm -hmm. And one wall was just printed out papers of like COINTELPRO findings. Yeah. That makes about sense. all of them. And just like, phone recordings just like spying on people mm -hmm. just like covered an entire wall which is like a whole other like we're talking about the draft is a big part of the background of this it's like constant infiltration constant more than just infiltration con and monitoring constant fucking with right yeah. you know um yeah and so yeah that's the young lords uh, sorry that's the young patriots uh and that's the Good rainbow job, coalition yeah the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots, and then there's this another whitish group called Rising Up Angry, who are some of the more radical chunks of the Students for Democratic Society, um, who are mostly working class greasers from union families. Cool. I know. 
like I want them to show up on scooters or so. I don't need, I don't know shit about racers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they look cool. Um, and I'm not, and it's funny because I'm not, again, I haven't like covered the Black Panthers deeply, but for anyone who doesn't have a basic understanding, uh, they're a black power organization that I'm certain we'll talk about more later. Um, they scared the ever-living fuck out of the U.S. government. They were violently repressed through direct application of force and through COINTELPRO. Black Panthers were into black power, by which I mean a declaration of self-determination for black people. And it included such ideas as to quote, Quote from this book, The Young Lords by Johanna Fernandez, which is the main source, the best book that I'm able to find about the Young Lords. She says that Black Panther, Black Power is, quote, the right to armed self-defense against white racist violence, black pride, and the development of independent black political leadership free from pressures to accommodate the interests of northern white liberals. Um, so that's the Rainbow Coalition. Let's talk more about the Lords. Damn. By 1969... The Young Lords had their own newspaper, which covered all the protests they were up to. It talked about imperialism. It talked about what connect. It connected everything to what was happening in Puerto Rico, to what was happening in Vietnam and Africa. It had kind of an unoriginal name. It was called YL, YLO, or Young Lords Organization. Um, mm. It's to the point, you know. Yeah. I bet it had great graphic design. I think so. I know the New York one did. Um, I know more about the New York one, which is named after one of your mm. songs, but we'll talk about that later. Um, oh, yeah. The paper covered a ton of stuff, including what was going on in their sister struggles, like the Panthers. It had a pig of the month feature covering a local cop. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't figure out why the cops kept fucking with them, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> wow. And they were all organizing, and there were other organizations they were buds with, like LATO, the Latin American Defense Organization. And so they provided security for for LATO. It didn't they didn't just like perfectly overnight stop being there doing usual gang shit. It took a while. But their connections yeah. in the gang world were really useful to them. Uh, one of their own was killed by a cop at a birthday party. Like, I can't remember the details, but he like oh, like walks out on the street walks out of the house and cops murder him, right? The cop was acquitted. This is going to be shocking to anyone living in 2023 that a cop got away with murdering yeah. someone. Because um, so much has changed since, oh God, that's depressing sarcasm. Uh, Very depressing. The cop was acquitted. There was a march of thousands, uh, including members of a ton of other gangs with names like the Cannibals and the Hell Stompers. And this gang that was Irish, Black, and Puerto Rican called the Almighty Harrison Gents, who I believe are still around. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And I can't, like, again, I'm not, like, I tried doing more research about the Almighty Harrison Gents, and it's, like, I don't have enough context to make useful declarations about what gangs are up to. I'm not trying to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Young Lords are an example of gangs do good many times, you know, but power, power structures are complicated. You know, mm-hmm. and this gang unity at this march scared the ever-loving piss out of the cops. And I don't know if this is like where the warriors comes from, right? <laughs> but like, oh, it's true. But the whole like, there's more of us than there are cops. Can you dig it? Thing, like, this is what fucking scares. Like, when the working class realizes that they not only do we have the numbers, but we even literally already sometimes have the organizations and the fighting spirit. If it could be pointed in the right direction. Yeah. This, this unit didn't last. But what does last 
is the cuteness of baby elephants bathing themselves. Our, <laughs> Our sponsor. <laughs> Our sponsor. Yeah. And anything that you hear during this ad break that isn't about baby elephants was a mistake. And you should write to complain to Sophie on Twitter because she loves to hear <laughs> about how the ads suck. And you should tell her. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just press the forward 15 seconds button a couple times. It's up to you. Your choice. Here's some ads. So, we're back. I, for one, particularly enjoyed the one where it was four baby elephants and they were bathing each other. That was the best of the ads that I... What was your favorite of the ads that we just listened to that were all about baby elephants? You know, I always love when a a mom walks in and starts teaching the ways of elephant nature. That's like one of the things, surefire way to make me cry. Yeah, that was... That may have been the best of the ads that you all just listened to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It'd be really... I hope that someday we can just have... Well, I guess it's not a visual medium. All right. So the young ones. I was so stoked that it wasn't a visual medium, by the way. Anything oh, cannot be perceived. <laughs> yeah, I know. I understand. Trans Day of Visibility was the other day. I used a picture from two years ago because I was like, I'm not fucking brushing my hair. Fuck this. Like, God. makeup. Fuck that. For you, motherfuckers? Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. Trans Day of talking to a microphone. Queer day of... <laughs> queer day of uh, yeah, microphones are great. Of hiding. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. Be observed by non-strangers. That's always my favorite. But what was very visible was the May 14th, 1969 occupation of the McCormick Theological Seminary by the Young Lords. Oh, shit. In Chicago. This will not be the first time the Young Lords, not the last time that the Young Lords take over a church. Basically, just spontaneously during one of the marches for their dead friend. The, the McCormick Theological Seminary is part of this urban renewal campaign to bulldoze everyone's houses. And so people oh. didn't like that. And I don't know if it's actually related, but I think it's really cute that the other main story I've talked on the show that takes place in Chicago also centers around a McCormick. It was a, the McCormick factory in 1886 that gave us the strike that led to the Haymarket Affair, which we talked about in our first ever episode when immigrant anarchists faced down the Chicago police and someone hucked a bomb at them and lots of bad stuff happened. But if you want to hear about 19th century labor organizing, go back to our very first episode and you can hear about that. It's all part of the fight for the eight-hour workday, which included bombs and guns. Uh, Anyway, back in 1969, when they occupied the McCormick Seminary factory, no, theological seminary instead of the McCormick Harvester factory. Mm-hmm. A bunch of the seminary students joined in. Oh, it, wow. Yeah, like this is a thing that comes up a bunch is that people I don't know, people are more radical than we give them credit for, like random bystanders sometimes, you know, not always, sometimes bystanders. Yeah. Sometimes. The university conceded to most of their demands, um, which included shit like, when you rebuild, you'd better include parks and affordable housing and a daycare center and a Puerto Rican cultural center and a people's law office. Next, they went on to occupy Armitage Avenue Methodist Church, where they'd been meeting, which declined them to... Li- they basically went and were like, hey, we meet here. Can we rent space to do childcare and free food programs? And the uh-huh. Methodist Church was like, no. And so they're like, all right, we're going to do it anyway, though. 
<laughs> and when they did it anyway, the minister joined them and was like, yeah, no, I mean, I wanted you to be able to do it. Damn. And the church turned into a center for social services, including a free clinic. I just, they just did so much shit. We're like, we're not even halfway. Yeah. And also just like pushing people to live by their ideals. Like also, it's like they're pushing the church to be like, this is what you guys are talking about. Like helping children and people who need help. So it's also kind of like trusting. It's giving them the opportunity of being like, so just. Join us and live by your ideals, yeah. actually, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of radicals did is they just went up and they're like, yo, you want to like do the thing that you say you want to do? And a ton of them were like, yeah, I want to do that. And a ton of them were yeah. like, no, I just prefer having a position of power within a structure and using it to make my life yeah. nice. And that is, that's religion. It's both of those things, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But for this next part, we're going to go to a different part of the country. Have you ever heard of a city called New York City? I've been there. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. That's where where I was born. It has a very unoriginal name, I'll just say. Uh, But first it was Dutch and it was New Amsterdam. I like doing my little weird history and zoom outs on different places. I love that. It was Dutch and it was New Amsterdam. And then the English grabbed it from the Dutch and gave it to the Duke of York. So it became New York. The state is named after the ah. city. Then the Dutch grabbed it back and named it New Orange. Then England... Yeah, Doesn't it was, have the same ring. No, exactly. This is my theory. Um, Eng- the English got it back, thank God, and changed it to New York. Uh, very rarely am I excited when the English take things. But <laughs> could you imagine an alternate world where New York was named New Orange? I think... New York City would not be an important place. <laughs> Absolutely not. Although, like, oranges are great. Yeah. Just, but it doesn't have the say. It's definitely not, like, a tough name. You can't be, like, from New Orange. You know, it doesn't have the same. No. The York. I think Newark would be the center of culture of the United States of America instead of New York. Wow. Because it's a nicer That's sounding a name world. than New Orange. Yeah. So, New York City. Uh, fine place. I actually really like New York City. For as much as I'm like totally a country mouse right now, it's a, New York is fucking amazing. Yeah. If you're going to do a city, it's like you might as well go to the one. Yeah. You might as well be like be a fucking city. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 I get the advantage of cities where everyone still has single family homes crammed full of too many people and you can get nice food around the corner. But those ones you have to drive around. Yeah. Yeah. Being a New Yorker, that definitely is not a part of my experience. I'm a terrible driver. Yeah. So I'm I'm stuck in places that I can bike around. Yeah. Which is why you know when Hooray for the Riff Raff comes to town because the tour bus has crashed into the (laughs) venue every single time. You get a new tour bus every time. That's your like rock and roll thing instead of setting the guitar on fire. Just throw it away. Yeah. So New York City. The Young Lords start up in New York City too. Uh, And this crew starts with very different roots. Well, it gets presented as very different roots, but I want to pitch this. Because the Chicago branch was started by preteens looking to fight back against local white bullies and racists. And they wound up socialists and communists and shit through that work. The New York branch got started by radical political organizers, mostly communists and socialists. Mm, Okay. Who came out of the gate with that revolution stuff, right? 
Um, most of them were college students, but they were college students from poor neighborhoods, many of them the first of their families to go to college. Most of them were Puerto Rican, though at least one was person was black and not Puerto Rican black, but African-American black. Okay. And, and there's this thing where it's like, people talk about like the first in their family go to college as if it's the sort of like kind of upward mobility American dream, like liberally thing or something, but it's, it's not a la 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 American dream thing. Uh, and I don't know if it always is, but it certainly isn't in this case. Some of the founders of the New York Young Lords were the first wave of people integrating school systems. And they grew they grew up fighting wow. with their fists and community organization against racist abuse from fellow students, um, from teachers and from police. They had to fight all of those people. So I would argue that even though they're the college-educated communists, they're not actually that different from the Chicago Lords in the end in terms of their roots. Yeah, yeah. In 1969, they heard about the Young Lords through the Black Panthers. They, oh, sick. The Black Panthers had an interview with Cha-Cha in their newspaper. In it, Cha-Cha was saying that they were a class-forward, anti-imperialist organization. And, and that was something that they were in a particularly good place to understand as Puerto Ricans. Uh, Cha-Cha mm-hmm. said, quote, We have all kinds of people, a rainbow of people among Puerto Ricans, And that's why this is a class struggle. So these aspiring New York lords, they take a road trip to Chicago and they met the Young Lords organization. And they're like, yeah, this is what's up. Like, all right, we're going to start the New York chapter and the Chicago chapter is like, great. I guess we're the Chicago chapter instead of just the Young Lords, you know? Wow. Very exciting. Yeah. And and their arrival in New York City was specifically really well-timed because the radical scene was in trouble. Uh, because of the Panther 21 frame-up. Frame up. And I've talked about it like really briefly on the show, and I'm going to talk about it really briefly again, but still haven't dived into it. 21 okay. Black Panthers had just been arrested in New York City. They had been accused of bombing and sniping, of planning to bomb and snipe cop stations. Everyone knows it's a frame-up, and as a result, the police had an okay. even worse reputation than usual in New York. Everyone was found not guilty in, at trial in 1971 in the most expensive and longest trial in New York's history to that point. Under oath, the shitty infiltrators admitted that the violence had been their ideas, basically. And Afini Shakur, Tupac Shakur's mother, was one of the defendants. She got the undercovers to admit under oath that they had betrayed their own community. And, and if you want to hear more about her, I like doing my little like connections to other episodes. In the, yeah. in the Stonewall episode, we can hear more about her because she's one of the Stonewall rioters because the jail she was in, the Women's House of Detention, was across the street from the Stonewall Inn, and they all rioted in solidarity with the queers outside and or were all trying to escape and or were a bunch what? of queers themselves. Yeah. Wait, this is Tupac's mom? Yeah. Whoa. Gay woman who rioted for Stonewall from inside the jail that was on the same street as Stonewall. Damn. No, I... I had no idea. I didn't either until uh, I was working on the Stonewall episode and my friend Hugh Ryan has been a guest before was like, you need to make sure to include the house of detention in it. And I was like, I had never even heard, I had no idea that part of the rioters were prisoners, you know? Speaking of people I haven't, but I guess I haven't spoken about people who are often invisibilized, but prisoners often invisibilized and struggle. So... This is the backdrop for the Young Lords because the the police are on their back foot 
they're just they've just been deeply embarrassed. They're not as set up to cope with this new threat. But at the same time, the Black Panthers in the U- in New York and actually kind of across the U.S. by this, but are really fucked, right? And are like not mm. as well organized anymore because they've just taken this massive blow. So enter the Young Lords. Some of the founding members were were Black Americans, uh, and we talked about this earlier. And you had some good stuff to say about it. There had been tension between Black and Puerto Rican communities in New York. Um, there was a, but there was also a decades long history of solidarity especially around instances of police murder, such as in 1964, you have the Harlem riots, which are remembered as the 1964 Harlem riots, which is a terrible name for them, not, well, okay, this is too long for a name, but it's a more descriptive name. When a white off-duty cop murdered a 15-year-old black kid named James Powell, and people were justifiably upset by this. Which I think is a Jeez, more accurate description. Very long. Before he was killed... James Powell was part of a small group of black and Puerto Rican students who were being harassed and attacked for congregating near a school. Um, and during one 15th month, during one 15 month period ending in early 1965, the NYPD had killed nine Puerto Rican children Wow! because the police are not an institution that is a positive force in our society. I'll just go with that. But don't worry, white people had solidarity too. With the cops. Oh, God. Uh, when the mayor tried to pass a really lackluster police review board, I think after this killing, I can't remember, but uh-huh. 4,000 signatures against a really lackluster police review board were gathered. Uh, the white conservatives went all out on this campaign in order to stop a civilian review board of the fucking police. Oh, my God. Because nothing ever changes. They founded the totally legitimate grassroots organization called Citizens Committee Against Civilian Review Boards, which had a total of 370 billboards, 20 storefronts, and thousands of people door-to-door canvassing. They advertised in newspapers, TV, radio, and the ads would feature like pictures of black and brown teenagers with switchblades and scared white women. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucked Jesus. up. Yeah. And it worked. At that at that point, too, that's like a high-tech like fucking media campaign. I know. At that at that time period? Honestly, like I haven't seen yeah, like yeah, like storefronts. I guess that must have been actually how you did it before there was other more media or whatever, but 20 yeah. storefronts where you could go in and I guess like organize and learn against the police being overseen <laughs> by the people who oh live in the city. God. Like it wasn't even like some like ACAB campaign, you know? <laughs> like No. Just like we're checking in. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's like body cams. It's one of these things where it's like, yeah, I guess it's good uh, in the abstract, but like it's not yeah. It it doesn't stop the things, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the this is the New York that the young lords start in, right? Th- okay. The white people are being real racist and defending the cops. The cops are being real racist and killing the Puerto Rican children, uh, and and black kids. And the youngest of these founding lords in New York was fourteen. Um, most of them were college age. Um, uh-huh. But the 14-year-old joined as part of an arts program that uh, helped found the New York City chapter. That was like one of the groups that did it 
the founding was an arts arts group. The least cool of the founding lords was a guy named Roy Pena, and he was the least cool because he was an undercover cop. Oh, damn. So they, right from the beginning. Yeah. Wow. Their first public appearance was, if, if, if you want to pick one place in New York City where you think maybe some like radicals met up, I'm curious whether this will work or not. Just one place? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, like a public library. No, that would have been a good guess. Uh, Tompkins Square Park. <laughs> wow! My humble beginning. I know. It's... That's often where I call, that, that's my early education, Tompkins Square Park. <laughs> I think when Alinda and I met, I was sometimes sleeping in Tompkins Square Park during the day because I hadn't found a squat to live in. Yeah. They open it early in the morning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you literally walk around all night or you go to a party. And you hang yeah, out yeah, at the yeah. party all night. And then you go to Tompkins Square Park and you go to sleep in the park. And that's probably where I met Take Alinda. Take a nice long nap. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> did you say look at us now? Is that what you said? Oh, no. I said you take a nice nap. Oh, yeah, but yeah. also look at us now. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where the Young Lords have their first public appearance in New York. On July 26th. I feel so connected I know. to this history. That's one thing that's cool about New York City is you can be like, oh, on the following street. And you're like, oh, like a lot of things happened there, you know? Yeah, yeah. On July 26, 1969, there was a commemoration of the Cuban Revolution organized by a ton of New York City leftists and the Young Lords. And the Young Lords showed up in purple barrettes, berets, berets, and black fatigues. Barrettes would be cute, though. It'd be, they had purple barrettes. Definitely. Um, and they had their banner a Cuban flag with an AK-47 superimposed. They're not subtle. At all. <laughs> <laughs> Their chairman is a poet who spent some time in prison and came out a community organizer. And his, his name is uh, Philippe Luciano. A real G. Yeah. I've met him before. Oh, shit, really? Oh, yeah. It was, it was pretty fucking cool. Yeah. He gave a speech in Tompkins Square Park on July 26, 1969. And this was their first appearance. Their first action came out not long after. Uh, and they called it, well, I'm not going to tell you what they called it because it wasn't called products and services. But that's what we're going to cut to right now is products and services. Because I don't have usually um, just to tell everyone how the show runs. Basically, Sophie's like, do a fucking ad transition. What the fuck? That's, um, <laughs> and here we are without Sophie, lost in the wilderness. Our fearless leader. Due to the curse that I brought upon this show. <laughs> yeah, we've been. Her things keep happening to all of us. All of the. Anywhere I had the script, I was like, and it's our second four parter. It's because today I had to go through and change it to be our, our second four parter because this is going to be the first four parter, but we've had to delay multiple times this recording because of curses that we won't talk too much about. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, speaking of cursed objects, buy some gold with Reagan's face on it. That'll make you happy, healthier, <laughs> younger, more attractive. Clear skin. Absolutely. Uh, nothing says smart financial decisions like, ooh, what if we got a crypto ad? Anyway, here's some ads. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and we're back and so far iHeartRadio hasn't kicked us off for talking <laughs> shit on all their advertisers <laughs> We'll see how long that they lasts. They love the abuse. Yeah. It's like, I always worry that I'm just doing the thing where it's like, by talking shit on them, I'm just like being edgy and then like making them like more appealing or whatever. I just like no, have to no, fucking no. feed my dog. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, anyway, their first action, the Young Lords. It's not long after their appearance in 1969. They call it the garbage offensive. And this is a oh, reference. Yeah. Yeah, this is like, they do a lot of really cool shit. This Um, is legendary, though. Fuck yeah, cool. It's a reference to the Tet Offensive when the Viet Cong turned some shit around a year earlier in the Vietnam War. So to tie it all into like, we hate America and the imperial government, you know. The the first thing they did was actually they just went around fucking talked to people. They walked around East Harlem, their own neighborhoods, and they asked people what was wrong, what was on their minds, like... And they decided that the first thing they should do was something about all the, the garbage that wasn't getting picked up. Um, there's, there were mountains of garbage at the time, whole abandoned buildings full of garbage, sidewalks full of garbage. And this is because a bunch of complicated reasons, but mostly just classism and racism. Mm-hmm. 
the like people didn't the garbage collectors just would ignore those neighborhoods. They didn't bother putting in uh, enough garbage cans. At the time, uh-huh. they didn't even use garbage bags in the garbage cans, so the gar- whole garbage can had to get picked up, and so garbage goes everywhere, and lots of reasons, but classism and racism at the core of it. So they go to the sanitation department. They try, I love how like radicals, like you're always like, they just started off blowing people up. And you're like, no, they started off by, they went to the sanitation department and were like, can we have some trash bags and brooms? And the sanitation department said, well, what if we give you a bunch of racial slurs instead? Wow, really throwing them a curveball. I know. Can you just give us some bags and brooms so we can clean our neighborhood? And they're like, no, we're going to yell racist shit at you because we're a bunch of racists. Yeah. I feel like white people sometimes think that racism is more subtle than it is, you know? Yeah. Um, So they stole a bunch of brooms from them. They're getting called racist shit. Uh, That's as best as I can tell. Either way, about 35 young lords started literally just keeping the streets of East Harlem clean while wearing their uniforms every Sunday. But this wasn't quite the... This was like worth trying, but this still wasn't quite the move. They couldn't single-handedly do it. There's just 35 of them, and it's just sort of volunteerism. Mm -hmm. Doing that work put them in the public eye, and it put them in conversation with people who mostly assumed they were there with the government or some church. Okay. They got some recruits, but they didn't get a mass of them. And it also didn't clean the streets. It wasn't enough. So they stepped it up to doing the thing that's the epic thing. Yeah. They gathered a ton of trash. If you have any, like, versions of the story, I'll, I'll love to hear them. Because it's like, I know about this from books, you know? They gathered a ton I as well of, from books, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. They gathered a ton of trash from empty lots, including old mattresses and couches and such. Took it over to Third Avenue, uh, which is a you know avenue that was used by the rich to move across Manhattan, and dumped it into the street. And then they did this a bunch on various thoroughfares, just over and over again. They they did it daily for months. Uh, oh my god, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I've always is, heard like the lore as if it was like this one event, which of course it wasn't. When yeah, you think about it. There is one that is the one event, but all okay. of this happens first to build up to it, right? Okay. Um, yeah, for months, they just dump trash daily in the middle of fucking Third Ave or any other avenue that, uh, like, law-abiding white people or whatever you use. You it, know? like, inconveniences rich people, basically. Yeah. yeah. And this is a more effective tactic than the volunteerism on almost every metric. The city uh-huh. was forced to deal with the garbage because it was blocking the streets that white people used. Hundreds of people started joining in, creating the kind of spaces where people get to know each other and hang out because the social fabric has been disrupted. Yeah. And the young lords would lead impromptu discussions and let people air out their grievances in these like temporary autonomous zones that were being created. Wow. And then when the cops came, they just take off their berets and take off and running and they never got caught. Plus... The other important metric of which to judge actions is, did you get to build barricades in the middle of the street? And the answer was yes. And it's always fun. <laughs> On August 17th, 1969, they figured out how to have even more fun. What do you think is better than a barricade in the middle of a street? Setting the barricade on fire. Yes! <laughs> Obviously. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... They called for a mass action. Loads of people did this particular garbage action. 
And then somehow it spontaneously caught fire after some people from the neighborhood poured gas on it and lit it with a match. Damn. And the whole next day, there's a six-block radius of East Harlem that was barricaded, and people were partying. And it's interesting, too, right? Because you have this, like, the riots are, like, trashing their neighborhoods, like, blah, 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 blah thing. Yeah. One of the things they were doing is flipping over cars. And the thing is, they were flipping over all the abandoned cars because the city used to have no means in place to deal with abandoned cars, so they just oh, would wind wow, up in course. poor neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, totally. And be like, well, let the fucking poor brown people deal with it. Fuck them, you know? Yeah. So they were like, all right, let's flip over all these fucking abandoned cars that got abandoned here, you know? And so the cops declared it a riot, even though it seems like a block party to me. And they sent helicopters. Uh, meanwhile, the young lords are giving talks about how to tie sanitation issues into larger systemic problems. They had a press release with a list of demands, which included stuff like put, these are wild demands. These are absolute terrorists. Uh, put trash cans on our streets and pick up the trash and not have only white sanitation workers and also give the sanitation workers a raise. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. And also no more of this weird shit where for a while in order to get your trash picked up, you had to bribe the workers. Oh, wow. Um, So that was their demands. May I chime in? And is this when Juan Gonzalez was the press secretary? Oh, I don't know. I kind of like weirdly didn't go with names on a lot of this. So please tell me. Well, Juan Gonzalez Mm -hmm. of Democracy Now! was, I know, their their, like head of press, like was the person that spoke to the press. So I'm wondering if he was around for this action or if it was later on. You know, what's funny is because of all the delays, I wrote this script several months ago. And I don't remember whether he's someone that someone told me about after I finished the script or if he's in here. So there's a chance, because I do talk about some of the press stuff a little bit later. The answer is I don't know. Yeah, he was there for like the the big, like famous stuff that we're going to get to as well. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah. But just incredible that they had like this organization and they were like, all right, we have our demands. They were also like very bold, but also very reasonable, like... Yeah. Not even reasonable and just like, oh, you're being reasonable. You're not asking for the oppressive forces like for too much stuff. It's just like this would make our lives better. And also it's bold. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The radical demand of what if there were garbage cans on the street and then the garbage picker like took it out. No, it it, I I love it. I love it. And and the fact that it's a radical demand just shows us so much about what's happening. You know, the all white sanitation workers it's actually this funny conflict like i have a generally positive impression of unions right but unions are not always inherently good or often do bad things and in this case it was the italian american sanitation union which was very racist okay and was like holding control over who got to be a a garbage man or sanitation worker Mm. they didn't win most of their demands uh in this particular go of it but they won Nonetheless, they won in two ways. First, they showed themselves and other people that collective direct action is an incredibly effective method of accomplishing change. They got rid of a ton of trash because they fucking just got rid of it. And two, they fundamentally changed how sanitation worked in New York City. Wow. Sanitation became a hot topic issue in the mayoral race, which was happening that year. Um, And so each side was one-upping the other about how they were going to get the trash pickup to be good in the city. 
Interesting. And the city changed how it did trash. This is when they started putting plastic bags into the trash cans. And dumping schedules were changed. Mechanics were put on standby to fix trucks. In three years, the city went from meeting 77% of its trash pickup per day to 97.8% of the trash pickup per day. Wow, that's incredible. Direct action gets the fucking goods. Like Seriously. And not to mention, like, what I've, I've said before about, like, reaching out to older generations. Like, well, from mm-hmm. what I've read about this event, a major thing was that older folks mm-hmm. were like, we trust you because you're actually listening to us, you know? Yeah. And it became a thing of, like, we, we believe that you young, you know, like, radical mm-hmm. kids are actually caring about what we want as well. And I just think that's really powerful. Yeah, that is such a good point. And the fact that the first thing they did was a listening project. They yeah. went and they were like, yo, what's up? What makes your life hard? You know, yeah. what can we do something about? Instead of like, I feel like it's really easy as a radical to be like, I care about this, so I'm going to go do this. You know? Yeah, or I that's think great. this would be good for you. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's where it's real bad. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, they won, not completely. They changed the face of the city by a combination of organized and spontaneous direct action, which I think also rules, right? Because it wasn't entirely spontaneous. They organized that event, right? Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. and they also tripled or quadrupled size in a matter of weeks because they were getting shit fucking done. Damn. And what are they going to do with all those people? Find out next Monday. That's my cliffhanger. <laughs> Exciting. Um, Yeah. But what also people should find out about is you and what you've been working on and how people can find you. Well, I have a band. I play music. Mm -hmm. And my band's called Hooray for the Riff Raff. And we will be on tour the month of May on the West Coast and in July. And you can find me on Instagram. I don't really... I lurk on Twitter and uh, and yeah, I'll be around. I just and I'm working on some new music, so that's good. Yeah. Okay, wait. Can I ask you a question about your music? Yeah. So, your music has been primarily folk, and then you put out a song called "Hungry Ghosts." Is that it? Oh yes. Did a bunch of people like? Did all the like white hipsters get mad at you over this? No. Oh, or at least they haven't told me. Oh no! Now I feel really guilty having brought it up. Ian, please cut that entire thing out. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Ian, cut this out. Know. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> no, I can take it. I can take it. Okay. Um, there's a dance song that her, that Alinda has done. And it's amazing. It's called Hungry Ghost. And it's this queer love music video about being kind of thirsty after a breakup. That's the best I can tell. Or maybe that was my oh, interpretation because wow. of where that I was That is at your interpretation. It, yeah, all right. And... um. And the comments on YouTube, at least when the song came out, I don't know what year it came out. Time is no... Oh, were they mad? Five or ten years. They were mad that you had moved away from folk music. Oh, this is my favorite thing. It's my favorite (laughs) thing. But I will say mostly I find that is older British gentlemen. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So it really makes me happy. That's like the one time I am a troll. Like, I definitely don't... I, I, I don't really 
find myself feeling very trolly, but when mm-hmm. it comes to that, I'm very like, yes, <laughs> I'm so glad I upset you. <laughs> yeah, no, I like, it certainly didn't affect your like, you know. It was really fun. Yeah, um, like people were still very excited about your music, but I just had this moment. I was like, oh, is this the like Bob Dylan goes electric moment for a Absolutely. Um, no, but now I'm back. I'm back to like the, like whatever. I'm not, definitely not in a mainstream music world, but mm-hmm. I feel like the music industry has beaten me down enough that I'm like, I just want my, me and my guitar are going to hit the road. <laughs> I don't want all this gear. That's legit. Yeah. Okay, but wait, what's the song about to you? I, I'm the For the listeners oh. who are still listening. <laughs> I mean, most of my songs, like, especially like kind of like songs like that. I was, I don't know what I would call like heart, not heartbroken song. Well, yeah, heartbroken songs actually mm-hmm. are about my family, <laughs> TMI. Okay. But a lot of that, that song was a lot about like running away and being like, um, and yeah, like literally, uh. it's not even poetic. It's like, I was like a ghost to my family and I was also very hungry. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah. That but is. I love, I love yeah. that breakup interpretation. Yeah. No, yeah. It just seemed like a thirsty song. <laughs> like a like. <laughs> <laughs> well, also the video, the video. That's, leads that, to that. I think that's, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't pull that out of nowhere. Well, <laughs> if you want to hear more about the young lords you all can check in next monday and next wednesday when we talk even more about all the amazing shit they did because we're just getting started and i will talk to you all soon cool people who did cool stuff is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.